what if you could fit all the financial planning advice you need really in life on an index card? Could you do it? If you could, would you like to at least know what that index card looked like? That's what we'll be covering today because this is something that kind of has become a, a, a viral phenomenon that we're going to make sure that we kind of give the whole money guy touch to. So hang in there and we're going to start the show right now. It's Brian Preston, the money guy, restoring order to your financial chaos, retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Hey guys, starting 2016. Is it? Yeah, that's the first episode of this year, isn't it? Officially 10 years of podcast excellence here. Can you believe that? I mean, 10 years that we've been doing this show, Bo. Kind of, um, that's kind of a, that's a big thing. 10 years of free. I mean, how, 10 years, there's some staying power there. That's pretty cool. It's a pretty neat accomplishment, a full decade. Yeah, you guys have had a big part of that. And, um, we're going to kind of continue on with the, the, what we've already started to this point is that I liked how we closed out 2015 when we did the 30 minute financial plan. And a lot of you guys, thank you for writing us because I think it is one of those powerful things as you close out the year, as you're hanging out with family members. What a great thing to go back and just refresh and make sure you have the basics down to make sure your family's protected as well as you're doing the right things to build financial independence. We're going to kind of continue on that same theme today. Um, I knew I had the right topic for this week's show when, Bo, I sent you the article, I think on Monday. Right. I mean, it was a, um, there's a brand new book that's out there in the marketplace and it's kind of causing a rehash of something that went viral back in 2013. And I'll get into that, but I got an email from part of the, the money guy family. James, who's not only a listener, but also a client of the firm, and we got him through the podcast. James wrote me up and said, Brian, I think I have, I think the subject line said this week's show with a question mark. And then I thought it was hilarious because this email came through on Tuesday that I, when I looked at it, it was the, it was not the exact same article, but it was an article covering this index card financial plan that we're going to be covering today. So I was like, Kapow. That means we are, we're right where we need to be with this thing. So James, thank you for the affirmation and confirmation that we are, you know, really doing the right thing with this week's show topic. By the way, if you, if you just want to go check out the website, it's moneyguy.com. Go check us out if you want to get show notes, links to everything. Cause we do, we know a lot of you guys are exercising. You're, you know, you're out there, you're commuting to work and you're like, I don't have a pen. I don't have a paper. No problem. Just go to moneyguy.com, get logged in there and we can get you the show notes with links to everything. Also feel free, become a free member. Uh, it, it is crazy not to become a free member and get access to more of our content. And believe me, I'm going to give you a hint, hint. Free is going to become even more powerful. So go ahead and be proactive. Get us those email addresses. And then remember, our day job is we're feeling wealth managers. If you want to take our relationship to the next level because you like what you hear, check us out because we are taking clients all across the country. We already have clients in 30 states. Love to have you become part of the Money Guy family. So what we're going to be covering today is, this is an interesting story that kind of occurred in 2013, is we're going to be talking about the index card, specifically the financial plan on an index card. And let me tell you how this all started. Harold Pollack was being interviewed by Helene Olin, and um, she's an I don't know why I'm giving you this adjective. This is just the way it's written out. She's a journalist and the author of the best-selling Pound Foolish. 
And he made an offhand suggestion. He said, look, everything you need to know about managing your money could fit on an index card. And to prove his point, he grabbed a four by six card, scribbled down a list of rules and posted a picture on the, of what he scribbled down online. It went viral. And it was pretty powerful stuff. You know what I love about it? it is, and maybe I'm stretching this a little bit, but I hear some money guy echo in that. Essentially, what this guy said was, is managing your money is simple if you're smart about it. And here are a few ways to be smart about it. Yeah, that's, that's a what, money guy echo. That's what we say all the time. We do. And that's why I think people, when they call us and reach out to us, even if they're not a good fit, we kind of go through exactly what we went through in that 30-minute financial plan because a lot of the basics – and that's what we're talking about. The basics of getting your financial foundations right can be covered very quickly. But I'm always surprised when the statistics show that not even half of the people are doing this. It is so sad that the majority of the people out there in the country are not doing what they're supposed to. So what we're going to be covering today is we're not covering the original postcard or index card that came out in 2013. Harold and, and Helene have actually come out with a book titled The Index Card, where they fine-tuned it. They fine-tuned still the same premise, but they went a little deeper. But I thought it was kind of cool is that, um, you know, there was an article in the New York Times where um, Ron Lieber reached out to other financial experts. And I'm only going to focus on, I'm going to focus on Harold's index card and then also Jonathan Clements because Jonathan is a guy I've been following for years. He, if you don't know who Jonathan Clements is, go check him out because he used to write a column for a Wall Street Journal. He very well still could because I run across his stuff from time to time. Jonathan does great work. Um, he, he's one of those people when you read his column, you're like, this guy gets it. So we're going to be covering his card as well as the updated index card that Harold Pollack did. So yeah, let's kind of jump he, into these. He was even, I think he was even one of the contributors. There was an article. It's been a few years ago now. You and Dave and I think Jonathan was on that list of some the biggest financial goose financial experts have made. Yeah, wasn't Jonathan on that list? Yeah, us? he was. Jonathan typically makes those lists because I mean he, I think he travels in circles where he's well known in the financial press. So jumping into this, so I think it just that gives a little more depth to to what we're going to be covering today. So let's just go into this, and we're going as we go through these. I'm going hopefully Bo and myself will be able to give that money guy flavor and go a little bit deeper beyond common sense on some of this stuff. So the first thing on the index card that Harold Pollack and Helene Olin put together was strive to save ten to twenty percent of your income. Now that's an update. On the original postcard or index card, I don't know why I keep saying postcard. In, on the original index card, he had said 20%, but he got a little bit of a pushback because a lot of people who are younger, that 20% is hard. Right. And, and I, you know, if you call me up and say, Brian, what's your advice? 20% is actually what I'm going to tell you. If you're, but there are some assumptions with that. I'm assuming you're not at starting out in your career because it does take a while to build yourself up to where you can save 20% of your income. So I don't want any of my 23-year-olds, 25-year-olds to feel completely stressed out because they're not saving 20% of their income. But it is something you should strive for. And a lot of the logic goes into, we don't have pensions anymore. So if you're not saving for yourself, there could be some trouble down the road because unfortunately in this day and time, you have to be accountable for yourself and save for the future. So that's a, that's a powerful rule to save and strive, strive to save 10 to 20% of your income. And that's also the paramount thing of living below your means. I mean, if you're, if you're spending less than you make, that's where that 10 to 20%, and that's kind of one of the cornerstone, cornerstones of being financially independent. The next thing, pay your credit card bill in full 
every month and deal with other forms of debt. To me, I think this is the part that Dave would smile on the most. Don't have debt that you don't need and try to knock it out when you don't need it. Yeah. I mean, and you do need to pay your credit card off every month. I mean, that's an ideal thing. I mean, because the interest rates can be very much a punishing thing. So you need to be very proactive with making sure you understand debt. And and I'm going to go a step further and tell you, we work with a lot of independently wealthy people. You know what I tend to notice? I mean, it's, it's just a given. People who are financially successful typically don't have any debt issues. It's just one of those things I think they know in the back of their their mind. It's a given that we're not going to let debt be that burdensome thing that sits on our shoulder and worries us at night. So get your debt management under control if you're going to be financially independent. The next tip, max out your 401k and other tax-advantaged opportunities. You know, I have a question about the debt piece, Brian, and I think I think it's timely because we are receiving this now. Does that mean that we should forego... Uh, Every any any other financial aspect of our life to get debt knocked out. Should we pay off our mortgage, be debt free on everything, before we start doing some other stuff? Why do you have to drag me into controversy? Well, come on, I just want to get your insight. That's all I'm you looking know, for here. I've had posts where I, whenever I get people, because I, I do think it's one of those things, and, and this is probably a a key thing. I don't think. That if you're a person, you have to look at yourself individually. And that's, that's the big thing. When I think other people, I, I have a tremendous respect for Dave Ramsey and he gives advice that you should not have debt and you should wipe that out first before you do other things. And I think that's great advice for the majority of people. But I think a lot of you guys who have taken the time to go find a financial podcast, you have to look at your individual career and your opportunities and you have to say, wait a minute. Okay. I'm a young person. Say I'm a young professional, I'm an attorney, I'm an accountant, I'm an architect, I'm an engineer, I'm a computer person, and I'm at the beginning of my career, but I see the potential in my career that I'm going to have you know, 15 20% pay raises coming my way in the coming years. Does it make sense? And in the example I've given, and I've used it several times, I know it's what you're trying to get out of me, Bo, is I had an attorney who was, um, she was very successful, um, was still below the threshold that she could make Roth IRA contributions, but had a little bit of student loan debt. And she was foregoing doing the Roth contributions and instead trying to go completely debt free because she had, she had been to a, a Dave Ramsey class. And I, I told her, I said, I don't know if that's the perfect advice for you individually because your income is, is rising at such a level. You won't be able to do the Roth contributions next year. You will now phase out. And it, and it concerned me. And that's the only thing I think. And please, if you're a Dave Ramsey fan, I'm not pushing aside Dave's advice because I think it is very good advice. I'm just saying, make sure that you're indivi- making it a personal thing for you, that you're looking at what aspects you have going on in your life because not everything fits everybody perfectly. And that's an important thing is that you need to think about it from a personal standpoint. Beautifully said, not controversial at all. Okay. Well, I tried to. I didn't, you know. We we spend a lot of time in the Nashville area. I don't need I don't need the big dog getting mad at us. So so let's let's focus move on with this. Max out your 401k and other tax advantage savings opportunities. Okay. But what is the thing that we tell people when we do 401k presentations? It is crazy. And I literally mean crazy. If your employer offers you any sort of match 
if you don't take 100% full advantage of that match. Because this is what it is. In most cases, let's say if you put in 3%, your employer puts in 3%. Your, your boss is guaranteeing you a 100% rate of return on your investment contributions. You didn't mishear that. If you put in a dollar, he is going to or she is going to guarantee you a 100% rate of return before you even invest a dime. That is incredible. And, and that leads me, and I hate to keep going on tangents, but it's something that just, something you just said just stuck out. I think so much of what I see in the financial media, and it doesn't have to be just what you watch on TV or read in print. This has to do with blog posts and so forth. So many people say things that are sensational, I think, just for the sheer fact of trying to get attention. And, and, and I want to, I want to tell you guys so that you don't fall prey to what is going on out there. When people make blanket statements like don't do 401ks unless you're either out of debt or you're maxing out your Roth and you're foregoing 100% rate of return like Bo says, make sure you're separating what's sensational and what's actually in your best interest. And I think that's something we as the Money Guy family have, we have, we've tried to forego the sensational stuff. And maybe that's hurt our career. Maybe that's made us not as popular as we could be because that doesn't get us in front of as many eyeballs. Um, by, by being on the front page of a paper, but I wouldn't be doing you a service if I was just trying to, to essentially scream fire in a crowded room. So is there an order of operations when it comes to saving? You do this first, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would tell you is make sure you have $1,000 cash reserves. After you have at least $1,000 cash reserves, make sure you can go and get your employer match. After you get your employer match, go and start funding those Roth IRAs. After you get the Roth IRAs, Make sure now you can come back to the cash reserves, get you three to six months of cash reserves. If you have more money above and beyond those other items I just listed, go ahead and jump over to trying to build wealth independently through an individual account, a joint account, and do some after-tax savings, still investing that money because it's going to be part of that, that basket. And all that ties into the 20%, which was part of rule number one. Great question, Bo, and hopefully I gave the, the nice, nice Cliff Notes version there. Um, here's one I thought was interesting. Never buy or sell individual stocks. Ooh, that, that one kind of is an interesting one. And, and it has a little bit of that sensational sizzle, but it also has a, a big portion of truth. I mean, I think a lot of people would be shocked if they went out there and compared their individual stock picks to if they just bought an index fund, mm-hmm. like the S&P 500. Um, we played around with that on one of the websites, you know, in, in, in a podcast previously. And it is one of those things. Now, yes, there's going to be exceptions. You know, if you bought Google at their original IPO, if you bought Apple over the last 15 years, you've done well. But it's still those are the exceptions to the rule. So I think they're, I think rule of thumb, if you're just trying to, you know, give yourself as much probability of success, there's probably something to that. There's definitely some roots to it. Here's the next one. Buy inexpensive, well diversified index mutual funds and exchange traded funds. What, what do we always say, Brian? There are two things. You know, you can't control the market. You can control your allocation, and you can control to a certain extent how much you participate. But there are really only two things you can control when it comes to investing. It's the fees you pay and the taxes you pay to a certain extent. If you can sort of master those two, you are going to probably be successful given the fact that you don't succumb to emotions. And one of the best ways to control the tax impact and control the fee impact is exactly that. Well-diversified, low-cost, 
indexed mutual funds and ETFs. There is one thing I want to I want to caution on this. I will tell you if you work with us, we love index funds on what we consider very efficient market classes or asset classes like large cap stocks. You know, if you're looking at a total market index or the S&P 500, those do a very good job because that's a very efficient marketplace. If you think about it, there's 500 big companies here in the United States. There's gazillions of people like me that are watching it. There's people like you that are reading everything you can get your hands on. It's hard to believe with how much and how fast information travels these days that you could have a competitive advantage over anybody else. So by all means, Go buy the index funds on on those type of asset classes. It does concern me when I see something like saying only buy well-diversified index funds when you talk about asset classes like bonds. I used to love buying index bond funds, but then we distorted the market with a lot of the federal action that's happened. And, and you know, it's one of those things when the market has now become distorted, I don't know that you want to buy an index fund on the bond side of things. Well, because it's going to have a lot of treasuries in there. It's not going to be a fully diversified option. Same thing a lot of times when you look at international side of things. There are hundreds of countries, and then there are thousands of stocks within each of those countries. It gets to be how efficient truly are those marketplaces. There might be some benefit of finding somebody who can navigate those waters. So I completely agree with this advice for because a large portion of your diversified portfolio will be large companies here in the United States. Buy the index funds there, but don't think of it's going to be an all or nothing. And I'd also be careful. What has been the best performing asset class for really since two thousand nine, Bo? Ooh, I know, I know. Uh, it's been large cap U.S. stocks. Yeah, the S and P five hundred has made anybody. Who even if you diversify, you've looked like a turkey for for diversifying because all you need to do, whether the market's going up or whether it's having any type of volatility, is just own the S and P 500. Be careful. We know trees don't grow to heaven, and that's something I would be a little concerned about. So when you, if you start seeing articles that say diversification's dead, it probably means that we're done with the run up in large cap because it just it, you can't keep doing the same thing over and over. Brian, what if I'm a money guy listener and I'm just starting out and all that stuff you just talked about about asset allocation and these different asset classes kind of I don't know that I get all that just yet. What's a good option for me if I'm someone just starting out at zero to start wading into the waters of investing? Oh, it is you are you have been born into a great time to be an investor because of technology as well as what fund offerings have now brought forward. Target date retirement funds. I mean, examples, I mean, pretty much everybody has them. Fidelity has them with their Fidelity Freedom Funds. Vanguard has them with their Vanguard Target Retirement Funds. Schwab has them. Everybody is offering these target date retirement funds. And these things are a blessing, I think, because what they what they offer you is that you go choose the year that you think you want to retire. Say that's 2035, 2040. And you go buy the, the, the 2040 fund and then it automatically will be very aggressive with it while you're young and then get more and more conservative on what they, the glide path. And I'm using my rabbit ears in the air right now with the, with the quote, but the glide path will determine how it changes over time. And I think these are great ways to start. And then as we talk about, as you, as your assets get bigger, say, 250, 300,000. By all means, I think there's some unique things that you can add more asset allocation. You can mitigate some of the, the, the risk that's out there. But by all means, take advantage of some of the new products that are out there. Um, moving forward though, kind of looking at the, what the next thing is, it says, 
Because this ties into kind of what we were just talking about. It says, here's the next thing it says. It says, make your financial advisor commit to a fiduciary standard. Ooh, that, that is a good one. And how timely is the topic of the fiduciary standard right now? Yeah, I mean, there's all kind of things going on. I believe it's with the Department of Labor, and they're, and they're trying to figure out for retirement plans, ERISA plans, are they going to require some type of fiduciary standard? And let me give you some definitions here. A fiduciary is typically what an independent SEC-registered investment advisor has to provide. And what that means is they have a legal obligation to put your interest, meaning the investor's interest, ahead of their interest, meaning that an advisor who's subject to a fiduciary standard actually has a legal responsibility to try to find you the best products for your personal situation. You can compare and contrast that to broker-dealers, and I've worked on the broker-dealer side, so I don't feel like I'm speaking out of class on this. I was a registered rep, had my Series 7 and 63 in the past, but um, a broker-dealer is subject to a different standard. Instead of fiduciary, which is a legal standard, it's now a suitability standard, which basically just means, is it suitable? Um, do they fit the requirements that this product, do they have income, do they have the th- risk threshold, that this is a suitable, doesn't have to be the best, but it's just that they fit in that suitable category. It's the same thing if you think about it. You go to your, your broker-dealer, you say, hey, I, I listened to a podcast saying they're talking about index funds. You got me an index fund you could put me in? I'm like, oh, yeah, we got you an index fund. No problem. And they go put you in an index fund that maybe has an internal expenses of 0.7%. And you go, great, I'm doing exactly what that was on this index card, and I got me an index fund. What you don't realize is that you could go to Fidelity or Vanguard and have an index fund that has an internal expense of 0.1. Was it a suitable investment? Sure. But was it necessarily the best investment? And you know, and that ties into a lot of things. That's how you get away with annuity sales and other things, because you just have to show income, and you have to show a risk that you could handle this and that's not always the best. We want you to have the best. So I think that that's a key key thing to understand what a fiduciary standard is. Did I cover that enough, Bo? No, no, I think that 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 is perfect. Uh, and if you're curious, just since it's timely, we in our day job, we are fiduciary advisors. So we actually kind of know a little bit about this. Fee only fiduciary. Put the fee only on love there it. too. Love so, it, love it. Okay, moving on. Buy a home when you are financially ready. You know, this one I really like, Brian, and we talked about this a few years ago because we live in a country, if you're listening to this in the United States, where the American dream was always home ownership, right? You want to have the house and the white picket fence. Um, But some things have changed a little where I think that the focus and the push and the drive towards home ownership got a lot of people in a place that maybe they weren't quite ready for a little too early and maybe a little too big. I'm talking pre-2008 home stuff. Um, how has that changed a little bit now that we've come through the Great Recession, now that we're sort of redefining what prudent real estate management is? Well, the good news is real estate's coming back in value. However, I think you're, you're right on, Bo, is that no longer is real estate supposed to be one of those cornerstone, cornerstones for creating financial independence for you. I would like you to look at real estate as a use asset, and it's something that you're choosing this as more of a life and happiness choice, not necessarily because you think you're going to make a gazillion dollars. Now, hopefully you will make good money on your real estate, but I do think it's one of those things where, and I think that's why they wrote it the way they did. They said, buy a home when you're financially ready. And financially ready to me, if you want to go deeper with it, is 
you know, make sure that your home, counting utilities, counting insurance, taxes, and everything that goes to run that home is not more than 25% of your gross income. You know, a lot of the financial stuff will tell you 28% to 30%. Um, I like you to be a little more conservative and bring that down to 25%. And that's something you should really take into account because there's no reason to be house rich, life poor, and get yourself in that pickle of a, of a situation. Now, just giving you advice or personal opinion. This is really more of an opinion. I do think there comes a time when, especially when you start having children and things, there is something about having roots, you know, where you're kind of past that transient part of your life. Well, and that really is when you start having children. My personal preference is I like, I think once you start having children, you kind of want to plant some roots, mm-hmm. but, um, I still would encourage you think about houses as use assets. Not something that you're putting in the plan that, hey, I'm going to retire off that money. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it's always nice that that could be gravy if you are able to sell and downsize and use that money. But I wouldn't count on it when I'm doing my retirement plan. Um, the next thing, insurance. Make sure you are protected. And I love, I mean, I love how open-ended he left that. He didn't just say, hey, make sure you have health insurance or... Hey, you might need life insurance. I would like it to be a little more specific, though, because I, there's so many different insurances out there. Yeah, but then, Brian, then you're going to get off the index card. Well, I know, but that's why it's hard to do a financial plan on an index. That's why you got to listen. And that's a key point. You know, you know, if you want, I can make it easier than an index card, Bo. You know what you can do if you want to be financially independent? It's smaller than an index card. You can put a little bookmark on a sticky note, the yellow sticky note. Listen to the Money Guy Show because that thirty-minute financial <laughs> plan is it goes deeper than this. I mean, I think that I think that Harold and Helene have done a great job with this, but it is hard to get it all on an index card. And, and insurance is a perfect example. By all means, you should be protected. And let's go through the basics. You got to have life insurance, term life insurance. Um, and, I, and when I get to, to Jonathan Clement's card, he does, I think, a better job on the insurance, and I'm, that's why I'm not going to go too deep. But by all means, before we get into Jonathan's card, look at life insurance, look at disability insurance, make sure you have health insurance. These are all things that you should be doing to protect your family. Yeah, two that I think we get a question on a lot, Brian, and we'll start with the one that, that hits a bigger portion of the population, then we'll do the lesser one. Uh, what about umbrella insurance? Two questions. One, what is it, and when do I buy it? And how much of it do I need? Yeah, umbrella insurance is cheap, first of all. So I'm to the point now, I think once you have a house and you have a car or two cars and you, you, you feel like you're, you're building that fi- you know, American dream and you, you've bought the farm, so to say, you really should have probably have an umbrella insurance. And I always tell people when you ask how much, base it off how much at net worth you have, because that's really what you're protecting yourself from is the additional liability. Umbrella really is what it visually sounds like it is. It is insurance. It sits on top like an umbrella on your automobile insurance, on your homeowner's insurance. So if you have somebody come work at your house and they get injured or hurt, if you're in a car accident, I even had umbrella coverage protect um, a, a person I was involved with where their child had done something to a school bus and somebody had been injured, their umbrella coverage was what provided the protection and helped the family make it through that. So it's a great risk mitigator. So so consider implementing that if you can. And it's cheap, like I said. So go check it out with your property and casualty insurance agent. So if I'm hearing you right, what you said is if you have assets that are worth protecting, it's worth it to go ahead and buy an umbrella insurance Yeah, but even policy. if you don't have assets, I would encourage somebody who's, you know, maybe you bought your first house and you and your spouse 
are trying to figure out, do we need Umbra? If you have a good income, that puts a target on your back too. So that's why I base it off of your net worth. So last one on Harold's card um, before we move over to Jonathan's card is do what you can to protect the social safety net to help people when things go wrong. What, what does that mean to you? I think that is a very individualized, very unique thing to kind of close out his card with. And I'll tell you my take on it, but I want to get your your thoughts first, Bo. Uh, I think, uh, read, it, read it one more time for me. Do what you can to protect the social safety net to help people when things go wrong. I'm going to really paraphrase this. and I'm going to try to make it not a political thing because that to me sounds a little, a little political. Right. But we need to do what we're supposed to do to try to take care of those around us. That's, yeah. that's the way that I interpreted it. I, I, I didn't take the political. I actually went a completely different way is that I look at it as treat others like you want to be treated and be charitable. Love it. I think if you can be one of those people that you're always trying to figure out how you can give to the less fortunate, how you can make an impact in your community and give of your time, is, uh, that's, that's what I got. I didn't go, and I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting older, I'm not as political as I used to be. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think I've gotten kind of jaded on politics to sure. a degree. But it is definitely, I think there is something to helping our peers and helping those around us. And, and truthfully, Bo, if you look at the fabric of what the show came from, I think we're we're part of that, hopefully. Absolutely. I mean, because we're definitely trying to help people make better decisions in their lives. So let's flip the script. And you can actually hear the page rattling around. I'm going over to Jonathan's index card. And as I told you guys, Jonathan Clements, I have a little personal background in the fact that the first time I ever got to see Clark Howard do his radio show, I went with a friend of mine who knew Clark Howard, and I, I actually was riding around with this article because I used an article that Jonathan Clements published. This had to have been, I don't know, early 2000s where he was talking about, I still remember the quote, it was talking about how you need to be saving 20% of your income because the old standard 10% wouldn't work anymore because Nobody had pensions anymore, and Social Security was kind of questionable. So I, I had that article with me, and I showed it to Clark while he had a caller on there, and he actually used it, and I thought it was great. So I've always had a special place in my heart for Jonathan Clements from his Wall Street Journal days just because of that whole story. So let's jump into his because I think his stuff is pretty priceless. He titled it. He actually put. He had enough room on his index card that he actually put five keys to financial wellness. <laughs> he, he must have the bigger index card. <laughs> but, but you can see Jonathan's been doing this long, and his handwriting, his penmanship is awesome. Because that's the other cool thing about this article. Like that actually showed the handwriting of the individuals who put it together. Here's number one. Keep housing. But by the way, before I read, he writes in all capital letters, and it's very you know it's it's not cursive. It's very blockish. Right. Very easy to read. Kind of cool, but okay. I, I, I digress. Here, I get back into it. Number one, keep housing, cars, and other fixed living costs to less than 50% of your income. That'll mean less financial stress, more cash for fun, and the ability to save gobs of money. He used the word gobs, because that's why I paused on that word. I'm going to paraphrase, and I'm using another, another, another one of the guys we like. Live like no one else, so that one day you can live like no one else. That's what I heard. Yeah, I mean, you definitely don't want to be, you want to be life rich. And I think a big part of it, you know, there were other index cards as this article, and a lot of people were talking about you want experiences to be greater than the things you have in your life. You want memories. And we talk about that on the Money Guy Show. If you, if I talk to my clients, one of the things I never mind people spending money on is travel and building memories because we all know we don't get to take the goods, the possessions with us when we leave this planet. I do like to think that we get to take 
our memories and who we are as people. So it, it ties in. If you have your 15, 50% for all the living expenses, it really leaves a lot of time for and money and resources for, for doing life. And that's a powerful thing that Jonathan put out there. Number two, never take on any debt you can't pay off by retirement. That's an echo completely. Yeah. Dude, that's a, that's, I have been saying that forever. I mean, I, there are all kind of things. There are even, even financial advisors I think are tremendous. And I don't even think they're being sensational. They analytically know that you are better off not paying off your, your mortgage ever. You know, especially when mortgage rates are around three and a half percent, you, you got to look at yourself and go, should I pay this off? I do think if you really want to be financially independent at retirement, you should pay it off because there are risks and fears that will come to mind once you go financially and, you know, once you leave the workforce and you're no longer working with your brain, your back and your hands, you're going to want to know that you don't owe anybody anything so that if you do hit a 2008 type stock market or financial market, you don't panic. I mean, that really is the key thing is that personal psychology uh, and, the, and the peace of mind and fulfillment to know that you don't owe anybody any money. And that's what Jonathan's talking about there. Analytically, you can make an argument you should never pay off your house. But I will tell you, psychologically, you will be much better if you pay it off. Number three, I like this one. In your 30s, worry about what would happen if you died or couldn't work. In your 60s, worry about what would happen if you lived longer than you ever imagined. So what he's saying there, Jonathan, that's a very profound statement because he's saying in your 30s, make sure you have life insurance, disability insurance, and you're protecting your family and loved ones. I mean, because you never know when that bus that you always hear about people giving examples of where something could happen and you're not here tomorrow. So you want to make sure that you are doing the 10 times your your income with term insurance, that you have some disability protection that's paid with after-tax dollars. It at least gets you 60% of your current income. That would be very powerful and would protect you. And then the, the second layer of his statement was in your 60s, worry what would happen if you lived longer than you ever imagined. That all goes back mm-hmm. to making sure that you have a plan of action because a lot of people, I have the question, people say, when I retire when I'm in my 60s, does that mean I have no more stock in my portfolio? No, you've got 30 years probably, 30, maybe 40 years with the way, you know, we're making breakthroughs in technology with healthcare. You need to have a plan of action that will get you through what does retirement look like? And I think that's, that is a great way that Jonathan put that on number three. Number four, you can control the markets, but you can control risk, taxes, and investment costs. Hint, Buy index funds. And, you know, and I don't think that I'm disagreeing with, with Harold or Jonathan because the lion's share of a lot of our investments are index funds because mm-hmm. that is the anchor is typically the U.S. Yep. stock market. So Index um, funds are common sense, and yeah. we just try to go a little beyond common sense. And let's face it, they've had a one heck of a run here recently. Um, number five, want greater happiness? Design a financial life where you spend your days engaged in fulfilling work and your evenings with friends and family. That's awesome. And there's a lot of people, you know, and it's one of those things, do what you love, you know, because there really is some powerful things to, to doing what you love. And, and then you don't get that Sunday dread. I mean, I, I have worked jobs where I chewed my fingernails down on Sundays where you were like, oh, my God, I have to go. Or you go on vacation and you're just like, I really don't want to go back. If you are having that type of feeling, 
you need to go back and listen to some of our shows on on vision planning and trying to figure out what your next step in life is. And and that's one of those things because nobody should be miserable with what they're doing for their entire life. Um, it, it, it's just one of those things that I, it saddens me when I hear people who who are just not having a happiness factor. And then in your evenings with friends and family, it all ties back to make sure that you have a fulfilling life, that you are, you know, essentially taking time to smell the roses and that you're enjoying because you don't get to take any of this with you. It's just a tool. So money is a tool and you can be very successful. And I thought it was interesting when I was looking and doing research for today's show. I like to go read comments on articles when I'm reading articles. And I, I got to tell you, a legacy that I was so in, incredibly impressed with, and we know the family, is how many people referenced the millionaire next door when they were talking about the, these index cards and said, just, you know, live below your means and, you know, go read the millionaire next door book. There's a lot of truth in that, you know, and I know I don't mean to be the cheerleader for the millionaire next door as much as we are, but it does have an incredible legacy and you really should go check it out. If you have never looked at the analytics that that book kind of pushes forward. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So, Bo, I, I mean, I think this show had a lot of meat in it, especially when we kind of gave it the money guy flavor and went a little above and beyond what was even on these index cards. But um, guys, looking forward to a 2016. We've got some things in the works right now that you're going to love free. Just free is going to be a powerful word in 2016 for my money guy family. So I, I don't want to give too much away because we're still in the preliminary side of things, but just know free is going to be your friend in 2016. And I think you're going to like some of the things we've got coming forward. Um, go check us out, moneyguy.com. If you want to write the show, you can write me directly. You can write Brian, B-R-I-N, at moneyguy.com. Or you can write my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen at Bo, B-O, at moneyguy.com. And remember, you like what you hear. You think, wow, these guys, you know, they're talking to me like I'm a friend and they know a little bit about finances and they want to make sure that they're sharing that with me. If you do want to make this even more personal and take the relationship to the next level, reach out to us. We, we'd love to hear from you because we love working with clients from, from the podcast. It's a really fulfilling thing for us. And you guys have been tremendous. And thank you also for all the iTunes comments. You guys have reached out through listening through Stitcher, through iHeartRadio. All that stuff keeps us relevant because there's no big corporate machine behind this show. This is it. This is a grassroots kind of passion project that's turned into a much bigger thing. And you guys are a big part of that success. And I can't thank you enough as we start a brand new year. Ten years of broadcasting beyond common sense. So powerful and so proud to say ten years. So thank you guys for that opportunity. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.